Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. Glad you all are here. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Acts. Same book we were in last week, so it should be easy to find. The book of Acts. you got your four Gospels, and then you get the book of Acts. And we will be in the very first chapter of the book of Acts. Pretty easy to find. Acts chapter 1. We'll be focusing in on verses 1 through 8 as we end our sermon series, Comfortable Christianity. Christ did not call us to be comfortable but committed. We have, uh, through about six weeks or so, looked at God's definition of uh, commitment. We have looked at various words in the New Testament. We've learned some principles about commitment from those words. And then we have looked at four things that the New Testament calls Christians to be committed to. Uh, God calls us to be, first and foremost, committed to himself. God calls us to be committed to the church, the people of God. He calls us to be committed to prayer. And then finally this morning, we see that God calls us to be uh, a people committed to evangelism. Evangelism. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I trust that you're there, close to it. If you would pray with me one more time, we'll dive into our message and prepare to uh, share communion together. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being here. It is sweet to be in your house together with your people, uh, singing your songs for your glory, and now sitting under your word that feeds our soul. And so we pray that you would speak powerfully through your word. Holy Spirit, we, we, we ask that you would come now into this place and that you would use the word that you inspired to shape us and to challenge us and to convict us, and to encourage us, and to teach us what you would have for us to be and to become. We pray it for the glory of Christ and for his gospel. And God's people said, amen. Well, you probably have heard of the gentleman on the screen behind me. His name is General George Patton. Of course, I speak of the famous World War II general. And as the story goes, that he would often ask his soldiers before they began uh, their mission, Men, what is your mission? Men, what is your mission? Because for Patton, being able to articulate clearly what the current mission was, was the most important piece of information that any soldier could carry into combat. What was the mission? Charles Swindoll, you may have heard of him, a famous pastor down in Dallas, uh, he tells a story about Flight 401. Flight 401, several years ago, was bound for Miami from New York City, loaded with holiday passengers. As the huge aircraft approached the Miami airport uh, for landing, there was a light that began uh, to flicker Uh, that would indicate that the proper deployment of the landing gear was failing. And and so, of course, this created quite the stir. The plane flew in in large circles over the Everglades while the cockpit crew then, of course, checked out the particular light and what was going on. And the question was this, had the landing gear actually uh, been broken or was it just the light bulb? And so they began to work on it. And first, the flight engineer was messing with the bulb, and he removed it, uh, but uh, it, it, it put it back in place, and it, it didn't work. And so uh, then another member of the crew uh, began to look at the problem, and the, the pilots began to focus on what was happening. And all of the while, person after person came, and no one noticed that slowly but surely the airplane was losing altitude. 
And as it lost altitude, we all know maybe how it ended. It ended in a horrific crash with the death, uh, leading to the, the deaths of many people. Um, the crew of that particular flight momentarily forgot the most basic rule of all, right? Fly the airplane, right? Fly the airplane. That's the purpose. That's the mission. And Swindoll then adds these comments. He said, the same thing can happen to the local church. The preacher and the elders can be so busy fighting petty fires and focusing much of their attention on insignificant issues that they lose sight of what the church is called to be about. He writes, the church can have so many activities and programs and projects and committee meetings and banquets and community involvements, so many wheels spinning that the congregation can, choose, uh, can forget its primary objective. He says, let's not be like flight 401. Our primary purpose, objective, goal, mission is to win the lost world to Christ. And so friends, from time to time, I think we need to ask ourselves the question that General Patton would ask his troops, right? What's our mission? What is our mission? What are we here for as Christians and as a church? I wonder if we, like Flight 401, can often forget the most basic of rules of the Christian life and what it means to be a follower of Christ. Don't forget to share the gospel, right? Don't forget to go and make disciples. Don't forget to be my witnesses. And so if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 8. The text breaks up into two pretty simple segments. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see the context. And then in verses 4 through 8, we see the commission. Here in this passage, we get uh, one of the chief missions that Christ gives to us as his church. We'll see the context to help us understand it. And then we'll see the commission itself, all the while learning some what I will call evangelism edicts, if you will. right? Some principles along the way. So the book of Acts begins, if you're there in your text, by connecting some dots. The book of Acts begins by connecting some dots, namely the dots between what Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, what he wrote in his gospel, right, four gospels, Luke is one of them, he wrote about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so here at the beginning of Luke, he wants to connect those dots. He wants to connect the dots of what he wrote about Jesus on earth, and then in, the, in Acts, he wants to show us what Jesus continues to do. The mission of Jesus continued through the local church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he begins in verses 1 through 3, uh, essentially with a summary. It's a summary statement of the time between Jesus' resurrection and the day of his ascension. So let's begin in verse 1. Luke writes, in my former book... Theophilus, the gentleman that he is writing this account for. In my former book, Theophilus, I, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days 
and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So Luke begins by reminding Theophilus of what he had recorded prior about Jesus' life, about his death, about his resurrection, about what he had then done after his resurrection, his teachings to the apostles. Notice something in verse 3. I want to point out something that's significant. Luke tells us that Jesus, in his post-resurrection appearances, gave many convincing proofs, evidences, if you will, that he actually was alive. The Greek word here translated proofs. It's a legal term, a courtroom term, and it referred to proof or evidence that was incontrovertible. In other words, it was solid, rock-solid evidence that would be presented in court. And Luke is telling us here that the resurrection could be proven. It was demonstrable by touch and by sight and by feel and by Sound. Notice also something from verse 3. Jesus, Luke tells us, taught his disciples, taught his apostles during this 40-day period about what Luke says is the kingdom of God. He taught them about the kingdom of God. This is a trumpet that Jesus began to blow upon the beginning of his ministry, right? Repent for the what? The kingdom of God is at hand. And he offered this kingdom to the nation of Israel. And did they accept their king? No, they did not accept their king. So there was a postponement of that kingdom, if you will. And so Jesus is taking this time to explain what in the world is going on. The king showed up on the scene. Jesus was that king, and yet Israel did not accept their king. So what about the kingdom of God promised to the nation of Israel? They surely had questions. Jesus answered those questions, apparently, during that 40-day stint. It's, it's, it's interesting. We see this pattern emerging, right? If you're familiar with the Bible... Have you seen this 40-day period before? Does that sound familiar to you, that there's a, a record of 40 days? Yeah, of course, right? There's a pattern here. Just as Jesus himself was prepared for his earthly ministry by 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, in the desert, so now his apostles are being prepared for their present ministry with 40 days of teaching from Jesus. We've seen it before also in the Old Testament, right? Remember that guy named Moses? Remember that mountain he went up on? How long was he there? Forty days, right? So Moses went up on the mountain, and and God himself instructed Moses to prepare the nation of Israel for their mission to the world. So now we see Jesus instructing his apostles for 40 days to prepare the church, which was about to be born in Acts chapter 2, for their mission in the world. So from these initial verses, I think we see at least two evangelism edicts. Number one, our message, the Christian message, is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I think verses 1 and 2 make this abundantly clear, right? The subject of the message that the apostles were to then teach, that the early church was to spread, that is our gospel. What is the substance of that message, right? To be an evangelist is to have a message to share, is it not? What is our message? 
the content of which is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Notice, take a look at verses 1 and 2. We, we see it there, right? It's about Jesus' life. Luke said, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It's about his death for our sins in our place. Luke calls it Jesus' sufferings. And then, of course, we include the resurrection. That is, that he defeated death, and he defeated sin, and he defeated Satan. Luke says that he indeed was alive again. And so, friends, this is Christianity 101, right? This is the simple yet powerful message that we have been entrusted with. But how easily we as Christians, how easily can we as a church allow some other message to creep in and to become an alternative message. In men's Bible study, we've been studying the book of Galatians. And in chapters 1 and 2, Paul tells the church that if anybody preaches a gospel other than the gospel that he preached to them, let him be accursed. Indeed, there is no other gospel. This is the gospel. And yet, how easily, how, how subtly we allow some other message to become the main Message. So, friends, let me be clear here about some alternative messages. Our message to a lost and dying world is not God wants to make your life better. That's not the gospel. Our message is not God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's not God wants you to be healthy. And he wants you to be rich. It's not that. It's not. God just wants you to be a better person. He wants you to be moral. That's not the gospel. It's not the Christian message. It's not. God just wants you to be happy. He just wants you to be happy in this life. C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him before. C.S. Lewis, wonderful Christian author, writer, both fiction and non In one of his books, he wrote this on the point that God just sort of wants us to be happy. He wrote this, what would really satisfy us, that is just kind of humanity in general, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happened to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? He says, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. Now, you all know the difference between a dad and a grandfather, right? We not so much want a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence, who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Friends, is that not the Christian message that many churches share? This is not the gospel. This is not our message. Our message is that God created us for His glory. To know Him, to love Him, to obey Him. But in Adam's sin, the human race, including me and you, was plunged into a fallen, broken, rebellious state and that we ourselves have been inclined to sin and that as a result we are in a damned state deserving of eternal death. It's not popular. We don't like hearing that. It's true. 
This is our message. But that God in His mercy and in His love did not discard His creation, but in His great love for us at the fullness of time sent His Son, sent His Son Jesus to live the perfect life, to be the righteousness that we need to be in God's presence, Christ lived for us. And that he died the death that we deserved, taking the wrath of God. We sung about it in our song, did we not? That Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved. And he rose from the dead to defeat sin and Satan and death itself. And that if we accept Jesus through grace, because of God's grace, through faith alone, that we will have eternal life. Friends, that's our message. That is the gospel. And if we are to be evangelists as individuals and as the church, then we better know what message we have, right? Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says that we as Christians are ambassadors of Christ. What do ambassadors do? They get a message from somebody higher than them, and then they share that message with somebody else, do they not? Is an ambassador a good ambassador if they get the message wrong? Shake your head no, please. No. They're bad ambassadors, right? They messed up the message. Friends, our message is the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Number two, our message is certain. I love what Luke says here in verse 3. It's fascinating, apparently, that Jesus knew that it was important to demonstrate without a shadow of the doubt to his disciples that he had indeed conquered death, that he really was alive. It wasn't some apparition. It wasn't some ghost. It's not like they took something or were smoking something. They're seeing things, right? That's not, that's not what it was. It was really him. He gave them, in Luke's words, many convincing proofs. He knew something about each and every one of us. We need evidence, do we not? We need proof to believe and act upon what we believe. He provided that proof to them personally, right? What did he say to Thomas? Like, here it is, right? You want proof? Touch it, right? He, he, he gave the apostles real proof. Friends, we were not blessed to be in their shoes, but we too have proof. We too have proof for those that we share with. Our faith is not some fairy tale. When we ask people to believe and trust in Jesus, we're not asking them to believe and trust in Santa Claus, right? Or the Easter Bunny, or some tooth fairy. Kids, don't listen. We're not asking them to believe in that, right? We are asking them to believe in a real person who really died for our sins and is really alive with flesh and blood, just like we have. There are logical, reasonable, historical facts and evidences and proofs about Jesus' life and his resurrection that we should point people towards. And so if you're just interested in some maybe helpful books Old book, but it's a classic. Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Sort of the classic piece there. More recently, Lee Strobel has, has written a book called The Case for Christ. If you don't like reading, that's the one that you should read. It's very easy to read, very compelling, personal story of an atheist's conversion to Christ. I recommend it highly. And then even more recently, Tim Keller's The Reason for God. Uh, if you're more like philosophy and that kind of stuff, that, that's your book. So... In verses 1 through 3, what is our message? Life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And that message, it's certain. Okay, let's get to the commission now, starting in verse 4. Luke, back in verse 2, told us something interesting. He told us that 
Jesus had given instructions to his apostles before he ascended into heaven. We probably should ask, what are those instructions? Now in verses 4 and 5 and on through 6 and 7, he gives us what those instructions were. Starting in verse uh, 4, we see the first. On one occasion, Luke writes, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift uh, my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So command number one, wait, wait. You wait right there in the city of Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And he likens the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples uh, to water baptism, right? Notice the imagery. It's, it's vivid imagery. He says that just as John the Baptist immersed or dipped people in water, these first Christians, as well as you and I, by the way, would be immersed or indwelt by the Holy Spirit upon our conversion. He promised this. Multiple fillings of the Spirit, one baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was about to happen. In fact, it happened ten days after Jesus ascended into, into heaven, we see in Acts chapter 2. Again, we see all sorts of parallels with Jesus' ministry here. It's intentional, right? Just as the, as the Holy Spirit baptized Jesus, remember that? When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down out of heaven like a what? Like a dove. Very good. I can always count on Dennis. Like a dove, Right? came upon Jesus to empower him for his ministry. So Jesus says that his successors, you and I, need Holy Spirit power for the task that he was about to give them and he's about to give us. Take a look at verse 8, if you will. Take a look at verse 8. Because we see in chapter, uh, in verse 3, that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit coming. But he doesn't tell them, at least then, why they needed the Holy Spirit, right? He just says, wait, it's coming. But in verse 8, we find out why. Because in verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive, what's the word there? Power, right? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So later in the commission, Jesus says, the reason why you have to wait for the coming of the Spirit is because the task that I'm going to give you, you are powerless to complete. You can't do it. You need divine intervention. And that leads us to point number three. Our message is not only the life and the, and the resurrection and the death of Jesus. It's not only certain, but our message is what I, I will say divinely empowered. Is that fair? Divinely empowered. We simply cannot evangelize on our own. If we do, our efforts, our efforts to do so will be futile. Philip Yancey, a Christian uh, author, tells a story. And he tells a story about a, a gentleman that I think there, you'll see behind me. His name is, is Dr. Paul Brand. Dr. Paul Brand. Now, Dr. Paul Brand was a pioneer, medically speaking, in developing uh, tendon transfer techniques. Say that three times fast. Tendon transfer techniques to, to people who had leprosy. So he was sort of a, a medical breakthrough at the time, but it, he was also a missionary. He would serve the lepers. He would share the gospel with the lepers. And the story is told that he was one day speaking at a medical college and, uh, uh, in India. And he was, he was telling his students, if you will, uh, preaching on when Jesus said, let your light shine, right? That uh, all may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And as the story goes, he was preaching and he had this lectern. And, and at the lectern was an oil lamp. 
There was an oil lamp there. Of course, it has a cotton wick. It was burning, right? And, and he preached, and as he was preaching, uh, the lamp ran out of oil. And so the wick, of, cor- of course, burned dry, and, and there was kind of smoke, right? And immediately, as the story goes, he, he took that uh, as an opportunity uh, to, to speak this truth. And he said, quote, Some of us here are like this wick. We're trying to shine for the glory of God, but we are not doing a good job. That's what happens, he said, when we use ourselves as the fuel for our witness rather than the Holy Spirit. He said, wicks can last indefinitely, burning brightly and without irritating smoke, if the fuel, he says, the Holy Spirit is in constant supply. And so he teaches us, we, we can't do this, but we've been given the helper so that we have divine enablement. So Jesus mentions the Spirit in verse 6. And then in verse 7, look at your text, excuse me, in verse 5. And then in verse 6, the disciples have a question. Notice, it prompts a question in verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In our mind, it seems sort of out of place. Jesus just promised the coming of the Spirit. And they say, are you going to set up your kingdom now? What's the deal? Well, in the Old Testament... Uh, there were many, many predictions of the kingdom of God coming upon earth. And guess what was often associated with the kingdom of God coming upon earth? The Holy Spirit manifesting himself in supernatural ways. So they hear Jesus speak of the Spirit, and they think, oh, kingdom. Maybe it's it's now. And so they ask him, Jesus, are you going to establish your kingdom now? Are you going to get rid of those pesky Romans? Are you going to restore Israel to its rightful place, to its rightful land? Are you going to set up your throne in Jerusalem, where you will rule and reign over all the earth in a kingdom of peace and prosperity and righteousness, fulfilling all that the Old Testament predicted? They wanted to know, was, was this the time? It's a fair question. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for asking it, it does he? Notice his response in verse 7. We get the kingdom question in verse 7, the kingdom commission, uh, starting in 7 and running into verse 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He essentially says it's none of your business. Fair enough? Is that an okay paraphrase? It's none of your business, right? It's not for you to know when that's going to happen. The Father has established it. So instead of worrying about when that occurs, what were they to be consumed with? Right? Don't worry about that. It's in the Father's hands. You now have a task. And we see it in verse 8. Right? To be his witnesses, if you will. Um. Shelley can attest to this, Herb Flinkman can attest to this, and maybe anybody else who attended Dallas Seminary. But if you attended Dallas Seminary like we did, we have a professor by the name of uh, Prof. Howard Hendricks, and uh, he taught Bible study methods. And it might have been our first assignment. We're all giddy and excited, first-year students, right? There we are in the class, and we're with Prof. Hendricks. And uh, he says, your first assignment is to take Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and I want you to make 25 observations from that from that passage. In other words, jot down 25 things that you see, and we're like, no, it's, you can't do that. We all struggle through it, and we wrote down our observations, and we're like proud of ourselves. 
Like, man, we are great Bible students. We listed 25 things from this one verse. And then we come back, and he says, great job, class. Now give me 25 more that are different. I'm like, what? Are you kidding? And, and somehow, we pulled out observations from this text. So if you're wondering if you can dig, mine the depths of the scriptures from one verse, absolutely you can. And this is the verse. It's our commission starting in verse 8. And from it, we see our fourth evangelism edict. Our message is that of a witness, right? He says, you will be my witnesses. Now, what is the nature of a witness? Why does he choose that term? Well, we're sort of familiar with that. It's a legal term, is it not? A witness is one who shares what they have seen or what they have heard, right? So, this is important. There's a personal, there's something personal about being a witness, correct? You can't be a witness unless you have personally experienced something. These disciples personally experienced Jesus and his resurrection, right? Now, we haven't personally experienced it like they did. But friends, let me ask you, if you are a born-again Christian, have you experienced the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, you have, right? In a different way. We have experienced that as well. And so we can be his witnesses too. So I want to ask, when was the last time that you spoke of Jesus? When was the last time that you shared with somebody, your children, Brothers and sisters, spouse, neighbor, co-worker, friend, somebody at the coffee shop. When was the last time that we have engaged in what the scriptures call evangelism, where we speak of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and then we speak of what that means to us, how he has impacted or changed us, right? We can tell his story, and then we can tell our story, right? Because they go together. Last evangelism edict here. Our, our message, notice at the tail end of verse 8, it is a worldwide message, is it not? Jesus did not simply intend the message of his life and death and resurrection to stay in the city of Jerusalem, right? He didn't want it just to stay there. He says so. Start in Jerusalem and then go to the region of Judea. It's sort of like a larger region. And then go north to the region of Samaria. And then go to the, where? To the ends of the what? The ends of the world. Ends of the, ends of the earth. Ends of the earth. And when you look at, when you read the book of Acts, guess what pattern we see play out? They start in Jerusalem. Chapters, oh, two through six or so. And then they go to Samaria, right? Philip does that. And then guess where they go? They just spread out to the ends of the earth. And, and the book of Acts ends with Paul preaching the gospel in Rome. Rome was the capital, not only of the Roman Empire, but, but of the entire civilized world. And he's there, and he's preaching the gospel. And historically, what happened? Like a heart pumping out blood throughout the rest of the body, God would pump the gospel out of the heart of the Roman Empire and Rome into quite literally all the world. And friends, we have a wonderful opportunity to participate in that. That's why here at Grace, we support missionaries that take the gospel around the world. That's why we give periodical updates from our mission board. That's why we pass along prayer updates. We want to keep you abreast because that's part of our mission here at Grace, is to take the gospel to the ends of the world. And that's why in 2019 or in 2020, 
our mission team uh, board intends to take an international mission trip. And let me just lay the sort of seed, if you will, in your mind. Friends, what a privilege it is for us not only to be a part of that financially by giving and supporting our missionaries uh, in prayer and in hosting them. It will change your life if you go to another culture and share the gospel. Just telling you right now. It'll change your life and it'll change our world. So just think about that. Pray about that. Don't automatically say no. Because God might be calling you along with us to go somewhere. And we don't know where that is. We want to, to be a part of this, um, of this edict, not only in our little Jerusalem, right? But we want to go to Samaria. And we want to go to Judea. And we want to go to the ends of the world. So, I'll close with this story and we'll prepare for communion. There is a story of a wonderful violinist by the name of Fritz Kreisler. What ethnicity do you think he's from? Fritz Kreisler. He was a world-famous violinist, and the story is told on one of his trips that he discovered a quite exquisite violin. And so he approached the owner because he wanted to buy it. But to his great dismay, the owner had decided to sell that particular violin to a collector to sort of put in a museum, never to be played again. Of course, he was disappointed, so he pursued the collector, set up a meeting with the collector. He said, I really want to buy this. And the man said, I'm sorry, it's my prized possession. I'm going to keep it as a part of my collection. And so he thought about it for a moment, and he asked the gentleman, he said, could I please play the instrument instrument one more time before it goes into a museum? And the gentleman said yes. And so as the story goes, he filled up the room playing the violin with such heart-moving music that the collector's uh, emotions were deeply impacted and his mind was changed. And the collector said this to him. He said, I have no right to keep that to myself. It's yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it into the world and let people hear it. Brothers and sisters, we have no right to keep the gospel of Jesus to ourselves. Let's take it into the world and let people hear it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and for your word. We pray now as we prepare for communion that you would help us to examine ourselves as Paul taught us to do so. That we would not take the cup and the bread in an unworthy way and thus bring judgment upon ourselves. But Lord, consider it a joy and treat it with examination and solemnness as we want to... Remember what your son has done for us. We pray this in his name and God's people said, amen.